The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Announcement done. Before I pray for our service this morning, I want to give you just a brief heads up. I know I started John chapter 7 last week, and it was an intro sermon. I said we're going to get far into it. What I've decided to do based upon the Spirit's leading We're not going to continue in John 7 any longer until the end of summer. As I said, we have a summer series. It's called Misunderstood Passages. We're going to get to jump around at all of those various texts that are taken out of context and various things that people um, might misinterpret. That's going to be our summer series. But for the next couple of weeks, we are going to be in another book that John wrote about. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, and I will explain why I've kind of uh, chosen this after I pray. So if if you will, pray with me, and we'll jump into the sermon. Lord, thank you for the church. As always, it is a blessing to be a part of your body. Uh, It is is an amazing thing that you have called all of us to yourself from every tongue, tribe, and nation, from every type of background. Those who from earthly standards are living the best life and those who from earthly standards are living the worst life. And yet you have called us all, not on account of what we bring, but on account of your grace. Father, I pray as we get to consider the church this morning, to consider the gospel, to consider what you have done in our lives, that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that we would... um, Uh, Just come before you knowing that you see us for who we truly are and that we could be changed from this text of scripture. Just be with us now in your son's name. Amen. So here's why we're going to Revelation for the next couple of weeks. Over the past several weeks and months, as elders and as leaders, we've been having some um, uh, conversations concerning the foundations of the Christian life. At our elder retreat, at, I don't, we don't normally publicize this, but, or we don't emphasize this. Uh, the evening before our men's retreat, the elders always go up to the retreat center early and just have an elder retreat, a, a time to get away for about 24 hours. And, and what we discussed at this past elder retreat was what it looks like to shepherd the flock, we opened up scripture, started in 1 Timothy 3, and went to a number of different places and just allowed scripture to inform us what does it look like to be a good elder? What does it look like to shepherd the flock of God? And what we walked away from there was it is very much like being a good father, helping the church to uh, avoid and walk through this difficult life by using scripture as our foundation. At our men's retreat then. We got to hear from Doug Searle as he points us to the unity and the beauty of the church from Ephesians, looking at the fact that the body of Christ is this people group that's made up of many tribes, tongues, and nations, but is here to sanctify all of us, but more than that, to be a light to this dark world. But even more than that, I have been having so many conversations with all of you about what it looks like to be light to this dark world. Because as our world is changing, As the Christian faith, if you will, is being questioned by so many people, the question that is coming into the church then is, what are we called to do? And this last Tuesday, I kind of had, I wouldn't say the last conversation, but the, the conversation that pushed me over the edge, and I finally realized, okay, I need to preach on this. 
It, hap it, it happened after our Bible study. I, I lead a men's Bible study here the second and fourth Tuesdays of every month. It's over in the annex. Love it. We're going through a book about the parables, but the conversation goes many other places. And as we walked out of, the, out of that meeting, um, two dear friends, Danny Deffenbaugh and Ron Roberts, I didn't even tell them that I was going to go here. Uh, Danny said, hey, Ryan, I've got a question for you. And after an hour and a half or two hour Bible study, which was glorious, we then stayed in the parking lot for like another hour discussing many things. And I actually forget the initial question that Danny asked that had Ron and I stay late. But ultimately we ended discussing how a good father disciples their kids. And discussing how a good father disciples their kids and then uh, considering how our good father, Jesus, God, disciples us as his Christians. Now, if, you're, if that word disciple, you're like, what does that mean? It's, I know it's a biblical word. It's train, equip, it's teach. It's parent your kids. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was just me considering how my parents discipled me. I have fantastic parents. They raised me up in, in the Lord. I love them dearly. They're not perfect, but... They're, they're great. And it was just considering the things that they wanted me to learn. And on top of me being a godly individual and fearing the Lord and, and understanding scripture and all of those things, one of the things that's always stood out to me about how I was discipled as a child is that my parents wanted to make sure that I was a hard worker. It was a characteristic of the Haskins family, if you will. I saw them work this out in their life. Indeed, I saw them talk to me about this when I was not a hard worker, when I was trying to shirk responsibilities, when I was being lazy, my dad or mom would pull me aside and be like, mm, hold up, hard work pays off. The only way out of, the only way, you know, through a difficult situation is, or out of, a, out of a difficult situation is through it. So you should apply yourself. And I saw them uh, and try to instill this characteristic in me. But then the word identity came up. And we were discussing, is hard work the identity factor of a Haskins member? Or is it a characteristic of a Haskins member? You see, so often we confuse identity and characteristics. These are two very important co cornerstones in life. But if we mix them up, we confuse things. You see, what makes me a part of the Haskins family is not that I'm a hard worker, though I tried to be. That's a characteristic of a Haskins. What makes me part of the Haskins family is that I am... Born into the Haskins family. So even if I was the exact opposite of that, I would still be a Haskins. But my father still wanted me, desired of me to live in this particular way because it, there's something inside of him who said, that's the best way. That is what we want our life, our family to be known for. The church also has the same cornerstones of identity and characteristics. The church has these cornerstones of, of who we are, but just as importantly, it has the cornerstones of what we should do. But here's where the conversation went on Tuesday, and here's where the conversation has gone many places, is that we fear that the proper characteristics of a Christian have been lost or muted in the broader American church, and maybe even in our church. That we've lost sight of what a Christian should do. I know for some of you, even when I use that language, should do something inside of you, like, wait, hang on, I, I don't have to do anything. This is why I say the identity and characteristics can't be confused. Your identity in Christ is based upon what Christ has done in you. He's declared you righteous. You can't do anything to, to earn that. But there's then the aspect of him being your good father that he calls us 
to live in a particular way. He calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we've been called, if I can quote Philippians. And so as any good father, as he sees us veer off the path, he steps in and corrects us. He desires for us to be built up in the traits of the family. A father will rebuke and discipline his child when they go wayward and he will call them to repentance. So here's why I start with that. I want us for the next two weeks to be reminded about what the family of God is called to do. How we are called to live. As Christians, what our lives should be characterized by. Now, why am I doing this? Because the world finds no problem in telling you what it expects of you. It finds no problem in telling us what it expects of us. It has no problem chastising us when we act in unbecoming ways based upon their expectations. You live in a world that is trying to disciple you in their paths all the time. And I think it's appropriate for us to shore up the foundation of our faith by understanding what Christ calls us to do. So here's what takes us to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in chapter 2 and 3 over the next couple of weeks. Now, I have to acknowledge something, and I have to apologize to two ladies over here. Amy, Luke, and Amy Amy Haskins went to a conference a couple of weeks ago uh, that was taught by Nancy Guthrie on the book of Revelation with the purpose of teaching that at our women's retreat that's coming up in August. I hope I'm not going to steal too much of the thunder, but I also understand it's in August. That's months away, and let's be real. By the time you get to August, you won't know what I said anyway. And they're going to teach more than this, so I just want to acknowledge I am stealing some of their thunder, but my wife handed me the book, and I've just been devouring it. And so, so the Lord put it on my heart and went, yes, we've got to teach this to our people. The book of Revelation is known for many things. Obviously, there's a lot of detail in here, and... Um, it has, it has served to confound people. It has served, you know, this book is, is both feared and loved. And individuals like to try to figure out what in the world is it saying. But it starts at a very intimate level. The book starts with a message being sent to seven churches. And these churches aren't, the only churches that were around when this book was written. These churches weren't even the best and worst churches that were around when this book was written. These churches, though, were the seven churches that Christ used to illustrate and to to, uh, train up all of the rest of the churches. So we can read these, and there's something inside the letters to each of these churches that you and I need to hear. So what we're going to do, instead of me standing up here and going, well, the characteristics that I think that all Christians should have is X, Y, and Z, we're going to allow Scripture to inform us where we need to possibly repent, where we need to take a second look at, where we need to reconsider, are we living as God calls us to live? Just some brief introduction to the book, to this book. This is written by the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote the gospel. He is on the island of Patmos because he would not stop preaching Christ. People were like, okay, preach Christ or we're going to send you to a hard labor camp to work yourself to death. He goes, Christ is better. So he's on this island working himself to death. He will die there. And on some night, Jesus gives him a vision of all of is to come, which is the book of Revelation. And inside of it, as I said, many different things. But here at the beginning, it starts with, 
I want you to talk to the churches. It's been about 50 years since Jesus has ascended to heaven. And so in one respect, in the, in the most black and white aspect, this is like a report card to these churches. Now that you've tried to go this without me there correcting each, each, of, each of your steps, let me tell you what you might need to adjust as you've been living this life of Christ. Because it is so difficult to live for him in a dark world. So I would say, I, I hope, because it's hit me, I hope that as we go through this the next two weeks, there's going to be something that you're convicted by. But I want to say at the beginning that there is grace. Because it is difficult to live for Christ in a dark and dying world. Briefly, chapter one sets the scene that is something that we need to be reminded about. And it is this. Christ is in the church. There's this image of seven lampstands, which are a picture of the church. And the son of man Christ is standing in the midst of the lampstands. And when I heard that, it was a comfort to my soul because when you read that, what you need to hear is that Christ is here in our church. Christ is in his church. He's a part of his church. He sees his church. He knows what's going on in his church. He's active in his church. Christ is not some deist God that's looking down at us going, well, I hope they can figure it out. He is among us, but we can so easily think that we are doing this alone, that Christ is not here, that Christ does not see you. And I know that when we say Christ sees you, there can be that fear of like, oh dear, he sees me. That's true. But there's also this idea of no, Christ sees you. He sees your pain and your struggle and your trials and your fears and your doubts and, you, and, and, and he sees you and he wants you to know that he's walking with you. And he opens up by looking at these seven churches. We're going to cover the first three this morning. We'll get to the next four next week. And he starts with the church in Ephesus. Imagine as this letter was written on a scroll and somehow got off the island of Patmos and made its way around the churches. And the first stop was in Ephesus. Hearing this book has some crazy things, this scroll has some crazy things in it. God has told John what is to come. And oh, by the way, your name is listed. Imagine if you hear that your name is included in this letter. You're going to be reading and be like, what did he say about me? He's talked about me. He thought about me. He knows me. Well, some of these are good. All of these are hard. All of these are necessary to hear. It says this in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, reiterating, I am with you. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be foolish, have been found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary. As the church is sitting in the pews and the seats, hearing this letter read aloud, I'm sure their thoughts are, he sees the struggle and the toil that we have. They have endured in the faith well. They have defended proper doctrine. They have tested false teachers. They have remained orthodox. 
Just think about how, how many of our fights are that way. How many of the fights in, in the church and even outside of the church, we just have to remain orthodox. We have to defend the faith. We have to make sure that we believe and teach and follow the right things. And you could think when we do that, we have succeeded. But they miss something. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. They lost their first love. Does it shock you to hear that Jesus is just as concerned about your affections for him as your theology about him? Again, we can focus so much on theology, making sure that we believe the right things, that we can ace the theological tests, that we just fall out of love for him altogether, that, that he becomes this thing that we do, that we accomplish, that we fill the, you know, check the boxes that we don't actually love. Jesus is saying, I am just as concerned about your affections for me as I am your knowledge about me. He doesn't, I don't want to say he doesn't care, but we can put so much emphasis on knowing and believing and doing and upholding that we forget the loving part. In this way, our relationship with Jesus is just the same as our relationship with our spouses and our fathers. Why do marriages so often end in divorce? It's not only because there's this gross breaking of trust between the two individuals. In fact, I would say it's more often than not, it's because they slowly fall out of love from each other. They just get into this habit of managing their lives. You're, it's, it, it's, it's no longer your spouse, it's your business partner. That we make sure that we fulfill all of the requirements of our life. And one day you turn around and you look at the person and you go, well, I know how to live with you, but I don't like you. Yes, you're my spouse and name, but I don't actually appreciate you. This same thing can happen to parents. As parents, we can get into the management of our kids instead of just the loving of our kids. We can think to ourselves, if I just make sure that they get straight A's, have a full ride to college, have the best job possible, then my parenting is, uh, you know, is, is done and is good. And then they grow up and they're like, yeah, great, you gave me everything, but you didn't love me. The same is true for Christ. He cares just about your, affect, your affections for him as he does your knowledge about him. When was the last time somebody just gave you permission to love him? Even, take this on a, even if you might get something wrong, but you just love him. You just express your affection for him. You just understand the love that you have because of him. I mean, when I, when I do marriage counseling or, or, or when marriage counseling happens and two couples come in the room and, or a couple comes in the room, these two individuals, there can be this thought of, I'll start loving them when they start loving me. There can be this idea of, it's their fault the reason I don't love them. Jesus loves you perfectly. You can't sit here this morning and say, yeah, but if he, if he treated me better, if he didn't give me the struggles that I have had, 
If he only made my life different, then, then I would have affection for him. That's pointing the blame, just like we do on the earthly level. If they gave me something more, then I would love them better. So it's on them. So if they start loving me first, then I'll love them back. God's perfect. The only person that is to blame for your lack of affection for Christ is you. And you might go, but I don't know how to get it back. How do I get that affection back? How do I get that love back that I, I, I pray all of us had at the beginning when, when our eyes were first opened to the truth of the gospel and in that like, I, I pray that you've been around one of those young Christians who is just devouring the word of God and can't help but talk about what he has done in their life and you can just tell there's this affection for them. Yeah, they might not know all of the answers to the theological text, but what they do know is that Jesus loves me. What draws us back into that affection with Christ is remembering the sacrifice that he had. He died on the cross for you. I'm sorry, you're terrible. And I can say that because I'm terrible. And we can debate who's more terrible, but we're all terrible. When he died on the cross for us, he suffered for us. He took on flesh for us so that you and I could be children of God. If that does not make your heart sing for joy and run with affections to him, that that is your savior, I would ask what John says to the Ephesians, repent and turn back to him. That's just church number one. We got six more to go. Okay, number two. Oh, sorry. So the character, because we're talking about the characteristic of a Christian. So the characteristic of a Christian is one who is deeply in love with Christ. Church of Smyrna. Now the church of Smyrna had the ability and blessing to read about the church of Ephesus. So when the individuals, when the letter went on, they're like, Ephesus, okay, that was harsh. What's going to be said about us? To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Smyrna was a, a, a Greek city. And this church was in the middle of a Greek city being bombarded by the, the, the pagan forces of the day. The city was a city of darkness. This church was a church of light living in the city of darkness. And because of that light, they had been persecuted. There was economic struggles. There were social struggles. And hearing that Jesus sees your persecution, sees your pain, sees you, has got to be at first just a weight off their shoulders thinking, okay, he knows. I mean, just think back. To, as a child when you were mature and growing up, going through that difficult time for the first time and, and, and somebody comes in and goes, I, I see that you're struggling there. I see that. I see that pain. Isn't it just helpful to be like, okay, I'm not crazy. It, yet, yes, it hurts. And this thought of what Smyrna could go, so what is God going to do if he sees our pain? Is he going to save us from our pain? Let's keep reading. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Okay. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. I don't necessarily jump on the 10 days being only 10 days. I think 10 days is a marker for a long time. There's going to be tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus goes, I know the pain that you are enduring. And oh, by the way, it's not actually going to get better here on earth. Jesus gives them hope. He gives them hope because he talks about eternal life. He gives them hope by reorienting their minds and their focuses. He gives them a hope that's not resting in this earth, is not resting in their economic status and their social status, even in their uh, breathing status, but in the eternal status. Hope is an interesting thing because hopelessness is one of the most frightening realities to an individual. I hope that um, at some point in your life you would read the book by Viktor Frankl, which is Man's Search for Meeting. It's a um, book that uh, documents his time in a German con concentration camp. And he just identifies what allowed an individual to live through intense suffering and when an individual gave up. And what he identifies in that, if I can boil it down to kind of one thing, I hope I don't get this wrong, was hope. He would see one individual not make it very long, and it was because they just gave up hope. And then he would see a, another individual live through this immense suffering and trial, and we would look at them and go, what did you have to live for? And it was because there was something in their life that gave them hope to live for. Well, notice the biblical hope that we have, and I actually want to consider Paul's version of hope. It says this in Philippians 1, 20 through 24. Yes, I will rejoice for, I, by the way, this is written in prison. So he's in the midst of these trials where, so he's been thrown in prison for these 10 days, if you will. Yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For, I am to live in the f for if I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for my progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul has such a hope in the future and eschatological realities of the gospel, what, what Revelation is talking about, saying there's hope coming, that when he thinks of death, he doesn't think of it as hopelessness. He thinks of it as future glory. So many of our lives are marked by what we are trying to attain so that we can finally say, my life is enough. We, we have to fulfill our longings here on earth for us to say, for us to be satisfied. You're striving for something. You're striving for something to say that by the time I die, I want to be known for blank. By the time I die, I want to have achieved this. 
When somebody stands up and reads my eulogy, what they will say about my life here on earth is this. And we think that the most hopeless reality is when the person doesn't achieve and receive what they so desperately want. I mean, this is why when we have certain losses in our life, it's so painful because we think we have this picture of what the perfect life is going to be. And we go, okay, if I don't have the perfect marriage, if I don't have kids or a certain number of kids, if I don't have, uh, meet this level in my, curtain, in my certain job, if I don't, you, you fill in the blank with whatever you're hoping for. We live our lives with saying, if I don't have this thing, then my life is hopeless. But what the gospel does is it stops looking at what happens here on earth. It realizes that this is, moment, this is a light and momentary affliction that this doesn't matter. What matters is the future hope of glory that we have waiting for us in heaven. This world will disappoint. Because here's what you can do. You can go ask the person that has the thing that you so desperately want. And ask them, did that ultimately satisfy? And they will say, no. I'm looking for something else. Imagine that. You, you're longing for kids. Go ask a parent if, if kids actually satisfy. We love them. It's a blessing from the Lord. They hurt. And and they keep hurting because I'm seeing many of you struggle with even adult kids where they're out of your home, but they're not out of your heart. And so you're struggling with, with how they still hurt you. Some of you are longing for a spouse. Go ask them to you as a spouse. They hurt because one sinner is living with another sinner and they're going to hurt each other. Go ask the person who has a level of income that you so desperately want. Are you satisfied? And if they're honest with themselves, they go, No. I could buy all the stuff you'd want. I, st I still want more. What, where our hope rests in is not in this life. We can be thrown in prison and die. And yet if we remain faithful, he will give you the crown of life. The characteristic of a Christian is one who knows where their hope comes from and rests in it. As our world is trying to veer us off the path of righteousness and living for God and following his law, so often we are going to be challenged with this. Because as our world turns, not to quote the soap opera, uh, <laughs> sorry. As our world changes, there's we're gonna, we're, there's gonna be economic struggles. There's gonna be social struggles. Maybe even we are going to be thrown in prison and put to death for following Christ. And if our hope rests in this earth, we are going to have a moment when we're going to question, should I continue? But if our hope rests in heaven and what Christ has done for us, we can appropriately look at those things and go, they hurt, they are terrible. We're going to fight against all of those struggles as, for as long as we can, but we are going to know that you can put us to death, but we have a crown of life waiting for us in heaven. Number three, one more to go. Pergamum. Jesus knows what you really believe. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. We're going to come back to that. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Pergamum was even more of a Greek city than Smyrna was. It was the place of of governmental power. It was a capital city. It was known for its multiple temples of Greek gods. There were many places of worship, and those places of worship used sexual sin in their worship of him. So this is why it's described here as Satan's throne. It's this reference of darkness. You're You're at the heart of the most wicked thing here, and they're saying you have faithfully endured living in this place. I mean, even it points to this Antipas who died because of Christ. But look what's happening. Because as much as the church is known for one thing, it's also known for another. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What's going on? This um, imagery of Balaam and Balak is pointing back to Numbers 22. Numbers 22 is a story where Balak, who was a Moabite king, was going to Balaam, who was a uh, sorcerer, to go put a curse on Israel because Israel was at the edge of the, of the um, Moabite territory and Balak was scared of saying, okay, can you go curse these individuals so that they won't overcome, so that they won't conquer us? This is the story where Balaam's donkey comes into play, where Balaam is trying to go talk to Balak, and the angel of the Lord stands in the middle of it, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and pushes it up against the wall, and all that stuff goes on. Well, ultimately, God does not allow Balaam to curse Israel, but Balaam still has an idea for Balak. If you want to weaken them, if you want to curse them, send your women into their camp. Balak's idea was not an outright rejection of God's law. The way that that, that they veered Israel off of God's path was not to say God is foolish, don't believe in God. It was rather to add sinful practices, to send in these Moabite women to intermarry, to sleep with them, to draw them, to lure them away from God's law. The same was happening here in Pergamum. There were individuals who were trying to combine the worship practices of the city and God's law. It's this whole discussion of Christ and culture. How much culture can fit into Christ. This is why I think he starts with the sharp two-edged sword. We don't struggle to defend against the big black and white heresies of the day. You know, those big giant lines in the sand, if somebody were to walk up and go, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Absolutely. So if somebody says, no, he's not, we go, that's heresy, that's wrong. If somebody goes up and says, you know, starts denying the Trinity, that's wrong. I've, you, you can fill in the blank, all those big ones. That, it's so easy to figure out what's right and wrong. What's harder is to figure out what is the line, that very fine line between Obeying God's law and living in the culture. The, the line that we all live. And where Pergamum happened is they started walking slowly, trying to get their toes up to the edge of that line. They started to say, oh, I can add this and that. Christ and this thing is okay. I can add a little bit of Christ and some of the world. I can believe what the world tells me and also what Christ tells me. I can live in an understanding manner with the world and in an understanding with Christ. And all of a sudden, this angel or this book is received and Pergamum 
what that said to Pergamum is, hey, the line is really far behind you. How in the world did you get here? Our world, again, as we have been accosted as Christians to turn a blind eye towards sin is being asked to accept things that are unacceptable from God. It's being asked to figure out what is that line between grace and truth? And when is too much grace? I know, it's even hard to say. When is too much grace rejecting truth? That's hard. That's why I think it says it with a sharp two-edged sword because it takes a razor-fine approach for all of these things. So the question that I would have you consider in yourself is are you remaining faithful to God's law? Because a characteristic of a Christian is one who remains faithful to God's law. Christ has called his church to live as he intended us to live. Our good father desires us to live in a certain manner. There is a manner which we are called to uphold the character of God. We are called, again, as Philippians 1 says, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we have been called. So this is when I can say as a Christian, there is a way that you should live, that you should operate. There is a level where you have to call sin, sin. And yes, we might be rejected by the world. We might be thrown in prison by the world. We, we might be um, hated by the world, but it's God's law. Each and every one of these ended with a call to repentance. Verse 16, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of your mouth. He who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who obeys. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is this hidden manna? What was manna? It was the divine gift to sustain Israel's life in the wilderness. What is this hidden manna that he's talking about here? God will sustain our lives. Not through this physical thing that drops from the ground, but through in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. So if your fear is how can I live this way, the world is going to hate me. I'm gonna have to stand up for truth that I don't like. I can't do that. What we can say is God is gonna sustain you. He's not calling you to do something and then saying, have fun, do it on your own. If there's anything that these three chapters prove is that Jesus, God, is not a deist. He's not outside of us saying, well, I've set it all up, have fun working on it. He is working within you. And what's this white stone? Essentially, it is an ancient medal of victory and honor. It's as if he is saying, I will give you the medal of honor for living in an um, amazing way. But it's not the president of the United States giving you this medal of honor. It is the creator of the world giving you this medal of honor. Both this week and the next, I, I pray every Sunday this happens, but in particular this week, there, I hope, something I said pricked your heart. I hope something I said, you want, man, I think I have allowed the world to influence me in an unbiblical manner. I need to repent of that. 
I think I have been trying to satisfy and fill me up and my hope rests in this world and what I do with the works of my hands and not in the hope that I have in Christ. I need to repent of that. I, I, I fear that I'm no longer in love with Jesus. I know about him. I show up. I serve. I do all those things. But am I in love with him? Maybe something more. So what I want to do this morning is actually make space for a time of repentance. And the hardest step toward in repentance is the first step. Isn't it easier to just maintain the lie that we're good? Isn't it safer just to remain in the dark when we don't have to deal with stuff? But notice where each of these started. Christ said, I know you. And that's just as true for us today as it was for these seven churches in first century AD. Dear Saint, Christ knows you. He knows where you're at. So in fact, the first step isn't to admit to Christ where you're at. It's actually to admit to yourself where you're at. Because Christ knows where you're at. He's not surprised at all. And you, and you may say, yeah, but if I admit to where I'm at, that means that he and I will be on the same page with how wretched and broken and off I truly am. Yeah, it's a good thing. So here's what we're going to do. Um, for communion, we're, we're heading there. This is, this is why communion is so important. I say this often. Because if I were to say repent and then not point you towards something greater, I'd leave you in despair. Because then I would leave you with only preaching law to you. This is what you should do. I'm not going to leave you saying this is what you should do. I'm going to say this is a characteristics of the Christian life. This is what God calls us to. As a good father, this is how he intends us to live. But oh yeah, he knows you are broken and you are sinful and you are weak. And so he sent his perfect son to this earth to live the life that you could not live. Jesus fulfilled all of these things perfectly. And, and not only in his div divinity, because he's truly God, but in his humanity, because he's truly man. He perfectly loved and worshiped and followed God like you and I were called to do. He did what Adam was called to do in the garden perfectly. And when we approach the table, what we say is, yeah, I am broken. But thank you for giving me what I need. But that should not stop us from having those moments with Christ just to repent about this is where I truly am. Help me. Because he sees you. He knows you. If you're in Christ, he's in you. And he will be gracious to you. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. Um, for communion today, normally we sing a stanza of the song. Um, I, I, I don't want us to sing during the actual passing out of the elements. So guys, they're gonna start singing. I'm actually not even gonna pray now. I'm gonna pray during the uh, communion element. Dave, this is why I asked to do communion. I just, um, so if the individuals can come forward to serve communion, they can pray. Just take a moment in silence, in your chairs, between you and the Lord, because he sees you. And repent, pray, ask, plead, rest. I'll come back up and we'll take this together. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. 
For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.